Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson. My guest this week is Ebony Booth, the author of Primary Trust, a new play that's a little difficult to sum up because part of the pleasure of watching it is discovering its many secrets. But I can say that it deals with the healing power that comes when human beings reach out and connect with one another, even in the most simple ways. Roundabout Theatre is giving the play a wonderful production that's directed by Knud Adams and that stars William Jackson Harper, who has made a name for himself on TV shows such as The Good Place and in movies such as Midsummer, but who, luckily for us theatre-goers, continues to return to the stage. Primary Trust is currently scheduled to run at the Laura Pels Theatre through July 10th. Hello, Ebony Booth. Welcome to Stagecraft. Jan, thank you so much for having me. We start these conversations usually with a brief description of the play. So would you tell listeners who haven't had the chance to see what Primary Trust is about, what it's about? Sure. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. I I usually say that it's about Kenneth, who's sort of a a lonely guy living in a small town in the Northeast who has to get a new job. And the sort of search for that job pushes him in directions that he sort of hadn't anticipated. And he has a friend that he's relied on. And, you know, the changes that come about with the job search wind up sort of causing changes to occur in his friendship. I'm sorry, it sounds so clunky and globbery, but I, I think that's how I would describe it. <laughs> I think you did a good job there because okay. <laughs> there's some things to protect. So where did you get the idea for the play? What was the genesis of it? You know, it's really funny. I actually had an impulse to write about bank fraud. <laughs> I, I've sort of been intrigued by the story of, you know, Wells Fargo had sort of a banking scandal a few years ago where a lot of bank employees were signing up people for false accounts and doing all kinds of weird malfeasance. And I've always had in the back of my mind that I was sort of curious about how that looked for people on the ground. So the very, very first draft of Primary Trust, which looked nothing like the draft that would eventually be put on stage, has some hints of banking gone bad. I can't even look at it because the first draft is so bad and humiliating <laughs> to consider. But I think that was sort of where the bank idea came from. And that absolutely wasn't working. But so I tossed it. But I that was sort of the first impulse. And then I started to just think about things that I like to write about. I tend to write about life in smaller places. And and then I just sort of started thinking about things that I was going through at the time that I was writing. And little by little, these sort of characters and circumstances began to emerge. Now, you say that you like to write about people who live in small places, but you grew up in the city, in New York City, yes? I did. I'm from the Bronx. Yeah, I I grew up in New York City and have spent most of my life here. I did. I went to college in Vermont for four years. That was my first time sort of really living in a place with a different rhythm. And I think there's part of me that could be suited to that. I, I don't know that I would chase it anymore in some ways, for better or worse. New York is home. But but the slowing down and the sort of the sense of community, you know, I also went to sleepaway camp for 10 years 
And sleepaway camps are a little like a, a tiny town, you know, of like a few hundred people that just sort of operate for the summer and everyone sort of knowing who you are and saying hello in the morning. Some, something about that was has sort of the desire for that has sort of stuck with me. What's interesting to me about this play and your earlier play that I saw, Paris, is that the central character in both plays are Black people who are living in a largely white world. And Mm -hmm. I wondered what it was about that situation that intrigues you. Yeah, in Paris, it was a little more, it was a little more front of mind as I was writing this story. And, And I think that as hopefully... As I mature as a writer and as a person, I'll, I'll be able to start finding other subject matter or finding different ways to sort of scratch at that same itch. But I think that it's a way for me to examine or a way for me to better understand some experiences I've had being being one of very few Black people in white environments. And I think that it's also been a way for me to write about different kinds of isolation. And I, I feel like I'm interested sometimes in a loneliness that's emotional that's cultural, that's racial, that's financial, and that's often determined by race and just the ways that that looks and how what well-meaning people, the different ways that their actions can sort of appear. So again, I, I think initially it's just been a way to understand my experience a little more and to sort of make a certain kind of use of feeling like an outsider. And, you know, I, I hope to find a way to be able to tackle that question in a number of different ways. But I sometimes feel like I spend a lot of time at the margins of my experiences, for better or for worse, you know, sort of looking in. And I can find it sometimes hard to connect to people. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I think a lot of that has to do with with race and sort of where I found myself in certain communities. It's interesting. I don't want to give away too much. but this You can. Jane, no, go for no, it. You can. You no, can. I am not. <laughs> I am not. (laughs) The play deals with trauma at some level, but it isn't necessarily Black trauma. And there's been a lot of discussion about moving away from the idea of putting Black pain on stage. And I just wondered, was that something that was conscious or did it just naturally evolve? It's a good question, and it's one that I've considered a lot, and I certainly talked about with the cast a lot. I mean, I think people should write what they want, and I'm, you know, I'm in no position to have any to have any opinion or say in, in terms of how people bring what they bring to the stage. I think that Kenneth's story feels specifically black to me. I just think that the sort of a lot of the sources of his discomfort might not be recognizable to people who are only used to consuming black lives in certain ways. And so that felt important to me to show that, you know, it, it sounds so insane to say, but but I guess it, they're saying just that pain comes from a variety of sources. And I think that understanding a certain kind of interiority for him and understanding how his fractured subjectivity has sort of led him to where he is felt important to me and that it might not sort of align neatly with what people think of when they think of Black pain and discomfort. To me, the play dealt maybe at baseline with loneliness. And so many people obviously dealt with that during the pandemic. Now, I read that you started writing the play 
before we were all pushed into social isolation. But I wondered, as you wrote during that period, did the isolation, did the pandemic have any effect on the writing? Consciously, I mean, again, maybe there's other stuff at work that I'm not aware of, but consciously, no. The draft that I finished before the pandemic has a strong resemblance to the draft that that became the production, much more so than the first draft. So loneliness, I guess, is just a preoccupation of mine. And it's something that we all felt in, in, you know, wild ways for the past few years. But I don't know. It's just something that sort of that sort of guides my work anyway. And so, and, you know, my experience of isolation really did vary through the pandemic. In some ways I felt, I I felt very alone, but in other ways I, I found myself connected to people, however, virtually, but I found myself connected to people in a way that the sort of hustle and bustle of my regular life just didn't allow for. So, yeah, so I would say that it wasn't, you know, the approach to this play wasn't necessarily magnified by what was happening during the pandemic. Now, I've used the word, the words lonely, and I've used the words trauma, and I'm, I think I'm giving the wrong impression, because this play is also very entertaining, very funny. Um, and one of the things that um, really put a smile on my face was the whole concept of his going nightly to a tiki bar. Mm-hmm. And why did you choose that kind of bar and choose as Kenneth's drink of choice, Mai Tais? You know, a few years ago, when I was still trying to be an actor full time, I spent six months in L.A. and I was so lonely and so out of my mind with the feeling of what the heck am I doing? I couldn't get any auditions. I couldn't get any work. I had no money. And there was a sticky bar in Glendale that was just really comforting to me. I don't mean to make such a one-to-one correspondence, but I'm someone who does like fun drinks. I like a frozen drink and a sort of tropical drink. But I think what I liked about that tiki bar was it was meant to provide comfort, and it did. I was so far from home. It was like sort of simple. It was not steamy. It didn't feel at all like a hip Los Angeles place. I could just sort of go for happy hour and and get French fries and feel a little comforted. And that that kind of comfort that you can find among strangers is interesting to me so I you know again I didn't know that at the time but now that I've been talking about it a little bit more I think a lot of Damon's this tiki bar in Los Angeles where I don't know I would sort of retreat and feel like oh maybe things aren't as bad and then maybe there's also some tension between Kenneth is in a a fictional town in the northeast but the northeast can be you know sort of cold and gray Mm. and there's something about environments that try to take you to another place and make you feel different based on the decorations and the sort of, you know, menu items or whatever, that there's something about the novelty of that, that I can, I can really get swept up by. The set design of this production is so unusual. And I wonder, how, how did that evolve? Was that in your script that you, you, you wanted sort of a representation of the entire town? Or did that develop in conversations with the director, the set designer? That's all the genius of Knut Adams and Marsha Ginsburg, the director and set designer. And they're so smart and they both have backgrounds in visual art. I indicated nothing in the stage directions about what this play looks like. I had no idea what it looks like. We could have done it very literally and just moved from location to location. It was Knut who first sort of suggested that perhaps the town 
and the place was a character that felt as important as some of the other people. And so we were like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so he and Marsha just did so much work and so much probing and just started digging into what it might look like to create a place that feels present, that allows Kenneth's journey to sort of be understood in the context of of a time and a place. And we're all we're all very sort of intrigued by you know, these towns and cities that were once very prosperous, but, uh, you know, are kind of flailing now in that sense of both absence and presence. I don't know, it sort of felt in keeping with some of Kenneth's queries. And so little by little, it started like that. And then Marsha and Knud were looking at some artwork that sort of, you know, looked at buildings where the scale was a little different. And, and all of that just sort of evolved. When I've talked to other people about the play, one of the things that comes up is that the people in this play are, for the most part, very kind. And, <laughs> and why do you laugh? Because they are. They are. You're right. I don't know why I'm laughing. I don't know why that makes me feel sheepish sometimes. It does. But, it, but you're right. No, they, they definitely are. I've been amazed by the emotional response to it. And so, you know, I, and I, I, I think for a variety of reasons, perhaps people are finding ways for that story to resonate with them. But just the way that people have said that, you know, seeing people sort of err on the side of good mm-hmm. and still try to overcome the hard things about life. But that's, that's been very meaningful to me. That feels sort of like important to me. They are kind. <laughs> and I, I, I think you wrote them that way. But also you have a wonderful cast. Yeah. Did you write with any of of those actors? Let me just run through their names. William Jackson Harper, April Mathis, J.O. Sanders, Eric Berryman. Did you write with any of them in mind? They're wonderful. They're wonderful. I'm so and Luke. Luke is our musician. I'm so lucky yes. to have all of them. And I and I I didn't write with any of them in mind, but very, very early on, you know, I wrote this play when I was still in school and I sort of did a reading of it and they said, Who would be your dream Kenneth? And I, I mentioned William because I've been such a fan of his work. So it, very early on, the idea of Will or a, a Will adjacent type was in my mind because of his sensitivity, his openness, his vulnerability, his presence as an actor, all those qualities. I just, all of those qualities felt very important to me. And I didn't imagine that it would be able to actually happen that way. But the, that seed was planted pretty early on. And then by the time we started doing readings, April and Eric sort of came our ways. And I, I don't know, it's just such a gift. They're just so wonderful. They're all just, they're just so wonderful and generous. And it, it's been really interesting watching how they work and how the work has deepened over the past few months. You've given April a real workout. She's got a crazy workout. I think that stage manager put in a report that she tallied up that I think she's playing 25 different people, perhaps over the course of the hour and a half, something crazy like that. She's she's doing a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And is terrific at it. You started off as an actor yourself, and I Mm -hmm. wondered how that has informed the way you write. I did start off as an actor, and I, and I, I hope to keep acting, you know, life is so tricky. You you know, you have but so much energy, but I'd like to do a play again. But I think that being an actor, I just wanted to make sure that one, that that people felt like they had enough to do that, you know, even a role that felt smaller still felt significant and important. And 
and that they felt like they were playing real people and that what was on the page was enough to support them. I think something that I've always sort of had a hard time with as an actor, particularly working on new plays, is a sense of like, you know, you just get that that tickle in your tummy and you just know like, gosh, this doesn't work or this isn't making sense or, you know, I'm supposed to use my performance to sort of fill this plot hole. And I, I never want to put actors in that position. I, it's been really nice working with actors who are so smart and frank and honest about like what feels natural, what feels forced and like just trying to create a roadmap for them that allows them to work without, you know, too much manipulation because the writing isn't all there. Well, I hope you do get the opportunity to to return to acting, but I really yeah. <laughs> hope, I really hope that you don't give up writing and that we get to see some more plays from you. Jan, I hope so too. I got to write another play. I, I hope to keep writing too. Absolutely. <laughs> Great. In the meantime, congratulations on Primary Trust and thanks for talking thank to us so about much. it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com. <laughs>